Last week, we studied, we looked at Acts 9, 32 to 35. How many of you guys were here last week? Yeah, the majority of you, great. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, it's all right to give a little toot there, whatever you want to do. Um, sounded weird. <laughs> you get those things, that, you hate those guys with those things at the ball games. <laughs> They're behind you, you know, the long plastic thing. Those drive you crazy? That's not a chauffeur. Yeah, yeah. don't bring those to church. Um, last week we saw how God basically used Peter to heal a paralytic man. And then how God used that miracle to bring many people, uh, many people in, a, in a town called Luda and a town called Sharon, these two towns. Uh, God used that miracle to bring many, many people in those two towns to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It was really an amazing uh, story and, and historical event that we studied. Enjoyed that time with you. Uh, this morning, we will read about, study, an even greater miracle that uh, Peter worked in sort of the same region, in another town in the same region. So if you will, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 9. We're going to be looking at 36 to 42 this morning. Acts 9, 36 to 42. I'll give you a moment to flip over there. Nine, thirty, thirty-six to forty-two. I think that's what I said. That's what I meant to say. Now thirty-two to thirty-five. So yeah, Acts nine, thirty-six to thirty-six to forty-three. For crying out loud, I don't even know the passage I'm teaching on today. That's what happens when you get sick. I sent Paul like the bulletin info, and I sent him like three different variations of it. He's like, settle on one, please. <laughs> Just can't think. My head's all clogged up and foggy. Okay, we are actually looking at. 936 to 43, okay? Let's stick to that one. All right? All right, I'll read it and pray and, uh, and we'll examine and apply it together. Now there was in Yopa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Not Dorcas. That's what I was calling her last week. I'm a moron. Dorcas. That's how it's pronounced. Dorcas, too. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when, she, or when they had washed her, they laid her in, in an upper room. Since Luda was near Yopa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. 39. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. It says, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them, 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Our last verse. Oh, no, it isn't. We're 32. I keep screwing that up. And it became known throughout all Yopa, and many believed in the Lord. Now our last verse. And it says, and he stayed. I love this little addition. And he stayed in Yopa for many days uh, with one Simon a Tanner. Great passage. Father, open our hearts and minds, and uh, I know I've got a racing mind probably because of the medications and things that I've been taking to try to stifle this cold. Lord, just, um, just fill me with the Holy Spirit now, Lord, that I can 
just calm down and be led by the Spirit and, and just teach your word. Uh, give these folks here great attention today and put aside with the distractions and things that might be, um, I don't know, inflicting them, whether it be illness or the stresses of work, the stresses of life, stresses of marriage and these things, whatever these things are. We have so many things that we're dealing with, such busy lives, so many responsibilities. God, we've come to the house of the Lord today to worship you and to learn and to hear from you, to be changed by your word, to be transformed, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. God, calm our hearts right now. May we focus greatly on your word and on your presence and help us, Lord, to stay focused. We lift all this stuff up to you, Jesus. It's all because of you that we can come and worship and listen and learn and be changed and live for you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's begin with verse 36. Don't have a long introduction or anything today. It's like these miraculous stories and things kind of just piggyback one another. So they're kind of meant just to kind of run through them. So not a lot of introduction, but we'll begin with 36. It says, again, now there was in Yopa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Before talking about describing, publicizing, putting forth the miracle that's in this text, before doing so, before describing that miracle, Luke basically sets the stage for the miracle. He sets the stage by providing information about the recipient of the miracle. In 36, he lists several important characteristics about this person. I'd like to look at each of them. These are sort of like character-building things. They give us sort of an an in-depth look into this person before we get to the miracle. This is all important. Luke does these things for, for several reasons, as we'll learn as we move through the text. But there are, I think, at least four. Yeah, I've got four key characteristics here. The first thing that we see in the verse is that the recipient of the miracle lived in Yopa. Yopa was a coastal town on the Mediterranean Sea, about 10 miles northeast of Luda, which is where Peter restored Aeneas, where he healed Aeneas. We studied that last week. So Yopa is in the region, just 10 miles sort of northeast on the water. Uh, Luda is several miles inland. And then so this city that we're talking about, our town, is right on the coast. It's a coastal city. If you were to uh, try to locate it today, uh, it does exist today, but it's known as Jaffa, uh, J-A-F-F-A. Jaffa is the original city of Yopa, uh, and it is part of the Israeli territory. Jaffa exists today, and so that's, that's Yopa, that's ancient Yopa. Jaffa is ancient Yopa. So this recipient was from this particular town, this little coastal town. I don't think that it would qualify as a city, uh, these were smaller towns. Um, I don't know what we could compare it to, maybe like a Denaire or something like that. So smaller town. Number two, the recipient was a disciple. It says right there in the verse, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke actually used, this is really interesting, Luke used a rare Greek word for disciple here. He didn't use the typical standard issue sort of 
word to describe a disciple here that we see throughout the New Testament. This particular word, and it's kind of challenging to pronounce, but it's pronounced mathetreia, mathetreia. Mathetreia only appears one time in the New Testament, and that is right here in this particular text. A mathetreia is a female disciple of Jesus Christ or a female Christian. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other female disciples in the New Testament. We see lots and lots of them. In fact, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul commends a whole bunch of them. There's amazing women disciples, followers of Jesus in in the New Testament. So this isn't like, oh, this is the only female believer. This is the only one. No, this is the only one where this particular Greek word is used to describe a female disciple, which means that this particular person is, is extra special. That out of the entire Greek vocabulary, Luke chose a specific word, okay? A specific Greek word to identify this particular gal. Immediately, my mind says, wow, she must have been really, really special. And there were a lot of special, amazing women disciples in the New Testament. In fact, when Jesus was dying on a cross, the only man that was there was John, the one who Jesus loved. The rest of them were women. And so this is an interesting thing that's taking place here. Mathetria, a female disciple, not the only one, but a special one. And this is where we see it for the first time and only time in Scripture. The third thing that we see is the recipient's name was Tabitha or Dorcas. Dorcas. Tabitha is an Aramaic name. Dorcas is basically the Greek equivalent. Okay, so Tabitha in Aramaic, if you were to translate, transliterate that into Greek, it would be Dorcas. Okay, so it's kind of the same thing. And, and both basically mean gazelle. Okay, that's the translation, gazelle. Dorcas is a gazelle. Uh, Tabitha means gazelle. Now, gazelles typically are known for their graceful movements. Um, may, many of you, maybe, if you're a little bit older in particular, have heard of the phrase like a gazelle, and it's usually used to describe a graceful woman. Uh, one that comes to mind would be Grace Kelly. Um, she's an old, you know, old-time actress. And maybe a, a new one would be like somebody like Kate Blanchett. These are women that have these very gracious movements and grace, gracious sort of graceful way of speaking. They have this graceful way about them. Very interesting. And so the names, the Aramaic name Tabitha and Dorcas mean gazelle. And we get the idea that it's like a gazelle. That's a, it's a graceful movement here. Now, Tabitha really lived up to her name, but not by how she moved, not by how she, you know, graced a, a, a high fashion runway or the silver screen or Hollywood pictures today or any of those things as these others had. She wasn't known, she didn't live up to her name because of the way that she moved, because of this effortless, you know, sort of grace that she carried with her in her movements and behaviors and attitudes, the way that she moved, her mannerisms. No, 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 no. She 
lived up to her name by how she gracefully served others. She was a, a gracious, graceful servant. And that is primarily how she lived up to her name. Very interesting. Uh, number four, the recipient, Tabitha, was full of good works and acts of charity. Hence the reason why she had that very special name and special title. Uh, Tabitha was an exemplary a disciple of Jesus Christ. Her life was marked by good works and acts of charity, as the text says. Her personal faith in Jesus Christ was accompanied by ergon, or action. Uh, and her action proved, the things that she did, the good deeds, the acts of charity, these things, proved that she was a true disciple of the Lord. Um, she would probably, I would imagine, verbalize her faith, but then she would back it with action. This is great for us because it's technically not, uh, it's not enough to just simply testify by mouth that you belong to Jesus. A true disciple shows that they belong to Jesus by what they do, as James 2.17 illustrates. Good works and acts of charity are meant to denote, in the text here, to uh, denote two particular things. They're two distinct things. Yeah, they belong under the banner of serving, but they are meant in the text to denote two different things, okay? So good works, if we were to categorize good works, good works here in this text basically denotes the giving of time, uh, the devotion of putting forth time to serve others. Tabitha gave her time to serve, to help, to encourage to provide for, to build others up. And so that's what good works denotes, that giving of time, that setting aside time to serve others, to provide for others. This is great. And then acts of charity uh, denotes the giving of what we like to refer to here at this church of talent and treasure, okay? It denotes the giving of talent and treasure, using your talent using, she used her talent, she used her treasure to bless others, to provide for people. We see over in 39 down, we'll get there in a little bit, that she provided widows with tunics and garments. Okay, what Tabitha would do is she would make these clothing, we would call it clothing today, she would make clothing for widows. That's how she used her talent. Obviously, she was maybe a seamstress, she could so she could croquette, crochet, whatever you women call that. I don't know. You know, my wife does it at 90 miles an hour. It's amazing. Um, I try it, and it's just like they get tangled up, and then it just doesn't work. I just don't have those motor skills. But this woman used her talent. She used it, and, and she used her treasure here to purchase the materials to be able to make the clothing and stuff like that. Verse 39, very fascinating. So good works is a reference to it, denotes the giving of time. Acts of charity denotes giving of talent and, and treasure. Um, in the New Testament, um, another thing too that's interesting about that phrase, acts of charity, charity can be translated as alms. We've heard alms before, the giving of alms. In the New Testament, alms is usually a reference to currency or money. Example, we read and studied a while back when the lame beggar um, asked for alms at the beautiful gate. 
he basically asked, he was there begging for alms. He was asking for silver or gold, if you remember. But Peter and John said, we have no silver and gold. And then they proceeded to give him what he truly needed, and that was Jesus and healing and restoration and his legs back. And he leapt up like a, like a gazelle, if you will. And it was this amazing thing. And so he was basically begging for silver and gold. And that's typically what alms is. Now, Tabitha was generous with, obviously, her time, obviously, her talent, and with her treasure in that she bought materials to make clothing for people and that she gave freely of what she had as far as her money goes. She provided charity, translated alms to others. She gave her money away. She gave to those in need. Now, this was all due to the effect that the gospel had on her life. Tabitha's acceptance, Tabitha's security, Tabitha's value and identity because of the gospel were fixed in Christ, not in what she owned, okay? And because of this, because of the work of the gospel, she was freed to give freely. Because of the gospel, Tabitha was generous with her time, generous with her talent, generous with her treasure. Incredibly, there are many in the church today that profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, but never put their hand to the plow of Christian service and never give of their treasure. There are many, seemingly, that prefer to be catered to and served by the minority group that does all of the serving and giving. This is a statistical fact in the church. The high majority does little to nothing in their giving of time, talent, and treasure. And about 20% are the ones that are doing everything else. Um, Been reading and studying this book called Doctrine, I've mentioned it many times, by Driscoll, and he has a passage on stewardship in the back, and he identifies, he talks about these things, and he identifies some of the main offenders in the church in his stewardship chapter in that doctrine book. He says this, young people are generally high on conviction and low on action. They will rant passionately about what the church needs to do, about what the church needs to do particularly online from the safe confines of their parents' home. (laughs) That sounds like a Driscoll. He's so antagonistic, and he needs to be. But there is far more smoke than fire, he says. And he says, the studies confirm that the most unlikely tithers and servers in churches are people under the age of 25, single adults who have never been married, and theological liberals. And then he puts hypocrites with an exclamation point. I left that part out, but now it's just like it has to be there. This is what he said, according to analysis. And it's true. Young people under 25, young adults, tend to not give much. Single adults don't give much. Theological liberals rant and rail against the church all day and against the injustices of this world and all these things and actually give little to nothing. It's terrible. Now, what causes people to behave this way? What drives this wicked behavior and poor 
stewardship. I have five simple things. What causes this in the church amongst the people of God? The first thing is gospel ignorance. If you don't understand what's been done for you in Christ Jesus through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, if you have an ignorance of what has been done for you, you are going to be less compelled to give anything. The greater your understanding of what has been done in your steed on your behalf as a lost, helpless sinner, the more you will respond through great generosity and love for God and love for others. Now, if you think about the church today, the gospel is typically held in ignorance, not throughout the entire church, but in most circles of the church, because the gospel is simply seen as an entry point into all things Christianity. And from there, Christianity takes over and we teach people how to be religious. And this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and every weekend should be gospel preaching because we need to hear it over and over and over. The gospel changes us, yes, at the moment of salvation and yes, throughout our life of sanctification on into glory. But if you have an ignorant view of the gospel and you don't understand how holistic and deep and broad and powerful it is, you are not going to be changed and you are not going to become the person that Christ desires for you to become. And one aspect of that is to be a generous person, one who is freed from the various forms of idolatry surrounding our money and possessions in these things that we could give freely because Christ is our all in all. Gospel ignorance is huge in the church, and it's one of the main culprits for why people are not generous. Doesn't it make sense that the more you dive into God's grace, the more that you love others, the more that you care, the more that you want to give? When you are given a more broad picture of what's been given to you in Christ Jesus, shouldn't that compel more giving from you? We look at the story of Zacchaeus, a.k.a. Danny DeVito. This guy is accepted by Jesus Christ for the first time in his entire life. He's a tax collector. He's been shamed and isolated the entire time that he was a tax collector. He was a Jewish man. And he is accepted by Jesus. Gospel. His security and identity and hope and foundation shift from the things of this world in a second to Jesus. And what does he do? He gives away most of what he has. And he pays back four to five times what he's cheated people out of. How are all these people in the world getting saved and not responding by being generous? It's perplexing. It's confusing. It's frustrating. Gospel ignorance is a big cause. Another one would be selfishness. Just selfishness, just amassing, laying up treasure for yourself in this life rather than in heaven where moth nor rust can contaminate or destroy treasure. Some people are just absolutely selfish with what they have. They are. Another thing would be fear. People tend to live in fear. Again, all of these are related to gospel ignorance. My fear is that if I give, I won't have enough to survive. If I give sacrificially, I'll be sacrificing my life and my family on the altar of generosity, and I'm not willing to do that to put them at risk or whatever the fear is. If I give freely, I won't have. It says in Malachi, test me. 
God says. Test me that I do not open up this storage facilities in heaven and, and dump so much blessing on you. Fear drives a lack of generosity. I'm afraid to give. It might leave me in a bad position. Or I'm afraid that I won't be able to get the things that I think I need, the things that I, I think that I have to have, I believe I have to have. With a, a, a society and a culture that drives fear through its advertising with the numerous 3,000 ads a day on showing us what we actually need in life, and it's the next biggest thing. I mean, that just perpetuates unlimited fear in our lives. That we don't have what we need because the ads are telling me I don't, and so I, I fear that I won't be accepted or received or loved or cared for by others, so I have to buy all these things and do all these things out of fear to create an image so I will be accepted, so I will be loved, so I will have status in these things, acceptance. Fear is a huge driver. Even retribution, retribution can be one. Well, I just don't like what that pastor said that Sunday, and so I haven't been giving to that church. I don't like some of the programs they have at that church. You know, I think they need to have swimming for the blind, and because that's a horrible example. It's amazing what ministries people come up with. They come up with things, and you're just like, are you going to oversee it? No, but I want it. Okay, never mind. But because this church doesn't have this or this church doesn't have that or because this church only does um, you know, children's ministry up to third grade because we value families being together in worship, that's what we prefer. There's a strategy behind what we do there. Because they don't have it, I'm not going to give to that church. Retribution. I don't like what that person did. I don't like that elder. I don't like the fact that that person who I've never liked actually attends that church. And I cannot support a church that supports that person. A lot of people hold back their giving out of retribution and out of mean-spiritedness. Now, I think it's understandable if the elders of a church have proven to be bad stewards and they spend tons of money on frivolous things and that you say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with giving there. That's not the time to cut off your giving. That's the time to hold people accountable. How often do we stop the bank flow and then just continue to cruise on in that place? Ticked and stirring up dissension rather than going and challenging the elders, which is your responsibility. I have to say I'm guilty of that. I've done that before. I've seen a lot of spending, and it's, I've become dismayed over it and just become embittered and not wanted to give and do these things instead of being a man of God and, and going and holding people accountable. Did we really need a $7,000 this? Did we really need this? Did we really need that? And some churches just spend money like crazy. I understand that, but don't do things out of retribution. Retribution, we're not supposed to do that. And how about just straight-up false faith? There are many tares in the church. One of the ways that a person proves that they're a tear is by their lack of generosity. Oh, don't say that. That's not right. Yeah. Do you understand what's been given to you in Christ Jesus? The infinite value? A secular person, a person who is not in relationship with Jesus Christ has no comprehension of what he's been given. He doesn't value what he's been given. Therefore, why would he give to the cause of Christ? There are a lot of tares in the church. Now, we need to be reminded of what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. How did Jesus serve people? How did he serve others? He fed them, healed them, he cast out their demons. 
He taught them the truth, the gospel. He discipled people. He sacrificed himself for them. His disciples, us, his servants, have been sent to serve as he was sent to serve. Jesus even said that his disciples, his servants, his followers would do even greater things than himself. Greater miracles? Not necessarily, but a lot more things because his spirit would be spread out amongst the church. Jesus could be in one place at a time during his ministry. And now he makes manifest his presence and power in the lives of every believer. And now miracles and teaching and encouragement and feeding and all of the things can be done on a global level. It's amazing. You can't die for a person's sins. That's what Jesus did. But there are a zillion other ways you can serve. Tabitha served people, her townsmen, widows, whoever they were, by giving. She served by giving her time, talent, and treasure. And the gospel should compel us to do the same. You know, that's really what it means to live an incarnational, missional life. You know, we have incarnational life means we have been sent as Jesus was sent to live as Jesus lived, to serve as Jesus served, and to give as Jesus gave. That's what it means to be incarnational, to live as Christ lived, to be His hands and feet, to do what He did. He set for us a model. We look at His life and ministry through the Gospels, and that is what we follow. That is our lead. That is the life that we are to live. God has exercised great, extreme generosity towards us with His grace, mercy, and even in His provision. And we are to respond to Him by being generous towards others. I love what Luther said. He said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Now, you can bring all those things before God, and He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and everything else. He doesn't need your good works, but the person that lives next to you does. The people of this church need your good works. The, the people of this church need for you to devote yourself to giving your time, talent, and treasure. That's how you actually serve God. That's how you serve God. Now, maybe you've never heard this before, But your time, talent, and treasure actually belong to the Lord, not you. Acts 17.24 says, God made the world and everything in it. This is God's world. Everything in it belongs to Him. It's not your world. Jesus said, all who have been given to me have been given to me by my Father, John 6.37. If you're a Christian, you do not belong to you, and neither does your Time, talent, and treasure, those things have been entrusted to your care, entrusted to your stewardship by God. They have been loaned to you, and God expects a good return. We've been taught repeatedly in church that we are to give God a percentage of what we have, but the truth is He owns it all. When you hold back your time, talent, and treasure... You are saying to God, 
These things belong to me. I own them. Keep your hands off. This begs the question, what kind of steward are you? Are you like Tabitha? Are you generous with your time, talent, and treasure? Are you like the Lord Jesus Christ, an incarnational, you know, missional steward? Or are you part of the 80% that enjoys the hard work and treasure giving of the 20%? Ask yourself the question, which group do I belong to? Analyze yourself in your giving of your time, talent, and treasure. I mean, this is a good, I know it's hard, but it's a good thing to do. And some of you give so generously. It's amazing. You get it, and many don't. You know, I, I get the general numbers of what comes in. I don't know who gives what, and I don't ever want to know who gives what. I don't ever want to be tempted to show partiality or condemnation towards people who give less. I don't want to know. It's not my business. But I do know what the church brings in. And I believe what the church brings in is not indicative of a number of this many people. Just ask yourself these hard questions. They're hard, challenging questions. How much of my time, talent, and treasure do I give? Which camp am I in? The 80 or the 20? Estimates show that if the 80% group stepped up and gave 10% of their income after taxes, not before, okay? If the 80% group joined with the 20% group and gave 10% of their income after taxes, $46 billion would be raised, additional dollars would be raised in the church. $46 billion. Bye-bye welfare system. A million Over a million clean water wells could be dug in countries that do not have clean drinking water. Five million grassroots gospel-based organizations could be founded. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If the church were to reach her full potential in the area of giving, it would change this world dramatically. But we've got 80% that would rather be bottle-fed by the 20%. These are people that have been changed and transformed by the gospel. Maybe they don't understand what's been done for them. Maybe they're being selfish. Maybe there's fear. Maybe there's other things that are perpetuating this behavior. What a great reason to hear the gospel and for discipleship. What kind of steward are you? You know, after we move, I mean, we only have one more service here, I believe, right? Wow, no more shoebox ministry. It's going to be great. It's like a box of ceased chocolate here, and you're all different flavors. That is just weird. How do I come up with this stuff? After, (laughs) life's like a box of chocolates. Who knows what you're going to get with any of these folks here. Um, But after the move... After we move to this new location, come March 1st, we will need participation from everyone who calls RHC their church home. We're going to need participation from everyone. The place is a lot larger. 
There's a lot more ministry opportunity. The small core group that's been doing all this stuff here can't handle it. Way bigger place. Uh, the cost of everything is going up because it's a more expensive place. We need for the family members of this church to really step up. Maybe for some of us that have been giving pretty generously, maybe we need to analyze how we've been giving and maybe there's greater ways that we could give. Certainly challenged by that. But we do need full participation. My thinking is, is that the gospel should generate full participation, if you understand it. Things are going to dramatically increase. Things will need to be purchased and donated. In areas of ministry, Cammie mentioned some of them earlier, there's just going to be so much opportunity. And the little core group that's been doing it here is not going to be able to bear the weight of all of it. So I want to challenge you and encourage you to seek the Lord and to seek ways that you can serve with us, that you can give in greater ways. It's a very freeing thing to do. Giving your time, talent, and treasure is a joyous thing. God gives joy to those who are generous. It's amazing. Now let's look at what happened next with Tabitha, who was a generous giver. Look at 36. In those days she became ill. Oh no. And then it says she died. Oh no. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. The text says Tabitha got sick and died. Interesting fact that Luke is a physician and he didn't list her illness. You would think that maybe a physician who wrote the book here back would maybe put that because he'd be fascinated by medicine, but he did not. However, diseases like pneumonia, tuberculosis, polio, smallpox were very rampant during the first century, especially in Roman towns and cities where there was a lot of population. Yopa would have been plagued by these illnesses because it was a Roman settled place. After Tabitha died, her friends and her family, or her family, these widows, these people, whoever it was that were present, prepared her body for burial by washing it. This was customary. Only women prepared women's bodies for burial. I thought that was interesting. Read that in a commentary. It makes total sense. Men were not a part of that. And then rather than laying her in a tomb, they placed her on a bed or platform in an upper room. Obviously, this is not the upper room where the Lord's Supper was held and where the early church met for fellowship and teaching and prayer and all those beautiful things we saw in Acts 2. This is not the upper room in Jerusalem at, uh, I think, Mark, the Apostle Mark's, maybe his mother-in-law's house or whatever it was that we talked about. This is not the same place. This is... 50 miles west in Yopa, an upper room. Many of these houses had these upper rooms. Usually folks that had a, a few shekels, had a few bucks, had these upper room homes. They were larger places. Now, why did Tabitha's friends and family put her in the upper room rather than in a tomb after ceremonially washing her? That was required by law. They should have put her in a tomb. Why did they not do so? They did so. They did not do it because they were holding out hope for her. They believed that if God was willing, He could bring her back to life. And this is what they believed, and that is what they wanted more than anything at that particular moment. Now, that illustrates the kind of impact Tabitha had on the lives of those who had been loved and served by her. It's amazing to me to think that people would wash her and not take her right down to Salus Brothers and, and you know, get a funeral going and just... Get her, get her in a tumor in the ground, they put her in an upper room and they were praying fervently and hoping and hoping and hoping. What an impact this gal had. And that immediately 
I ask the question to myself, how will people respond to my passing? Will they say to others, we lost an exemplary saint who loved God and others, whose life was marked by good deeds and acts of charity? Ask yourself that question. Will people stand by your bedside wishing you were still with them and even praying for your miraculous return? How you steward your time, talent, and treasure will greatly determine the level of impact you have on others. If you steward well, you will have a great impact. If you steward according to the patterns of this world, you will have no impact and you will be held responsible for your actions, Matthew 25, 26. I love that book, Don't Waste Your Life by Piper. He talks about these things. It's a very sobering read. It's a great read. And the fact of the matter is, is that Tabitha did not waste her life. And the people she served were at her bedside hoping and praying for a miracle. This was a tremendous servant of the Lord here, a loving servant. Look at 38. Since Luda was near Yopa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. The mourners, these people present with Tabitha, Tabitha's body heard that Peter was in Luda, and then they sent two men to retrieve him. The journey took between three to four hours. When they found Peter, they said to him, please come without delay. Why did they ask Peter to hurry? Why did they say, please come without delay? Because of a time limit. According to the law, dead bodies, people who passed away, were required to be buried before sunset. Deuteronomy 21-23. To let a body decay above ground, to leave it out overnight where vultures or dogs could eat it was considered a serious dishonor. Tabitha apparently died during late morning or early afternoon, which left just enough time for the men to travel to Luda, retrieve Peter, and make the journey back. The round trip probably took somewhere between six to seven hours. Peter would have to perform the miracle before sunset in order to meet the requirements of the law. Or, if Peter was unable to restore Tabitha for whatever reason, the men still needed enough time to bury her before sunset so they could meet the requirements of the law. Isn't that fascinating? This is why they urged Peter, come without delay. We don't have a lot of time here. We got about three hours of sunlight left. Can you come immediately? How did Peter respond? Look at 39. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Obviously, Peter stopped doing whatever he was doing. He arose and immediately went with the two men. When they arrived at the house, the men led him up the stairs into the upper room. When Peter entered, he basically walked right into a funeral service, okay? Tabitha's body, now cold and gray, was lying on a platform or bed. And then when Peter approached her body, all the widows of Yopa, it says all, not some, all the widows of Yopa, this room was packed, stood beside him. What were they doing? They were Klaeo, which means weeping aloud. Weeping there translated Klaeo. Weeping loud, loud mourning, crying out loud. Not just, you know, <sighs> you know, they were weeping profusely out 
loud. And what else were they doing while they were weeping? They were holding up the clothes Tabitha had made for them. What were they doing? Peter, look at what she... This is the kind of person Tabitha was. We are so distraught over her loss. Peter, this is a major impact on the church for her to go to be with the Lord right now. Look at the things that she made for us. I'm a poor widow. I've got nothing. My husband died years ago. My husband left me. Whatever it is, look at this. Look at what she did. They're presenting to him. It's almost like they're building a case for him to do something. Please do something about our friend. Look at her over there. We love her. She's an ex, just a tremendous saint. Please bring her back. Please. It's like they're pleading with her. Him. 40. Look what Peter does. But he put them all outside. Hey, we want to be by her. Please go outside. He put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Why did Peter put everyone outside? Because they were loud. He needed to get with Jesus. He wanted to invoke the name of Jesus. He wanted to pray to Jesus for a miracle. Lord, 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 exercise your power through me in this very moment. He needed it to be quiet. He needed it to be a solitary sort of moment between him and the Lord. He put them outside. And these folks were weeping at about 90 dB. Peter then knelt down and prostrated himself. Humble adoration for the Lord. How often do we pray on our hands and knees? How often do we prostrate ourselves before him? He gets down in this humble I'm below you, Lord, position. And then he begins to pray. I love how he includes that there. Who did he pray to? He prayed to the firstborn of all creation, the resurrected one. He prayed to the great high prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say in the text um, that he invoked the name of Jesus, but I have no doubt that he did because Peter always healed and did things in the name of Jesus. Luke doesn't include that here, but that's not to say that he didn't call upon Christ. (coughs) Now, why would he invoke the name of Jesus? Because of what Jesus said in John 14, 13 to 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, he says, I will do it. Now, after praying, after going to his knees and, knees and praying, and it could have, been for a, could have been for 20 minutes, a half hour, I don't know. I mean, there wasn't a lot of time with the sunlight, but he could have spent some time there. After praying, he turned to Tabitha's body, and he spoke. He said, Tabitha, arise. Arise comes from the same Greek root word Peter used when he told Aeneas to rise. This word is often associated with resurrection. But it's important for us to know that Tabitha was not about to be resurrected. Resurrection means, theologically, biblically, means to be raised incorruptible. And that's not to sting Aaron for his remark earlier, because I thought she was resurrected myself. But resurrected is an isolated term used to describe what happens to a person, and once they're raised, they never die again. That's the true definition of what resurrection is. And so someone who has been brought back to life is not 
resurrected. What are they? They are resuscitated. Okay? They are restored. If you look at the section title in your Bible, what does it say? Dorcas, restored to life. It doesn't say resurrected because she was not resurrected. She was resuscitated. She was brought back to life. Very interesting. Resurrection is, we need to understand these theological terms. It's good for us to know these things because we often use them in the wrong context or place. But resurrection always means everlasting. Resurrection is always an everlasting thing. It never has an ending. Resuscitation is, however, not. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he did not resurrect him. He resuscitated him. Lazarus experienced death again later on, and so did Tabitha. Now, the Bible teaches that all people will experience resurrection. The saints who have passed away will experience at the Lord's return resurrection. They will be resurrected into incorruptible, perfect bodies that will be fashioned for unspeakable, everlasting joy, elation, and worship. The dead, or those who have rejected Christ, will be resurrected on the day of judgment to face the justice and wrath of God. Their bodies will be fashioned for eternal punishment, torment, and damnation. It's like for the saint, they are resurrected into a body that is fashioned for worship. For the non-believer, they are resurrected into a body that is fashioned for punishment. That is horrific. That's, let that sink in for a moment, that God would actually give them a special body that is designed for torment. Does that mean God's mean? No, it means He's just. I mean, that's a scary thought. The saints get to enjoy this super body that was like Jesus's when He rose. Similar, and those who are outside of Christ are resurrected into a body that's meant for torment. All the more reason to proclaim the gospel and to see people get saved and rescued from the day of judgment and from this very tough, hopeless, harsh world here and now. All the more reason to proclaim the gospel and see people get saved and rescued from what's to come. And so Tabitha was not about to experience resurrection. She was about to experience resuscitation. <clears throat> Again, Peter spoke to Tabitha. How did she respond to his words when he said, Tabitha, arise, look at the rest of 40. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Her eyes sort of popped open. It's like a Hollywood movie. One of those dolls, you know, you know and you're like, ah, you know. I mean, this, this would have been just, obviously Peter was in there, and he was prepared to handle it. If I'd have been hiding in the room and saw it, I probably would have fled. I mean, just her eyes sprung open. And then she looked at Peter and saw him standing there. And then she sat up. This is amazing. Opened her eyes, saw Peter, and then immediately sat up. Blood started flowing. Hearts started beating. Organs started working. Senses came back. She sits up. This is amazing. Question. Whose faith was at work in the resuscitation of Tabitha? Was it Tabitha's or Peter's? It certainly wasn't Tabitha's because she was dead. She was in the presence of Jesus. She was in paradise. So it was Peter's faith that the Lord worked through. Now this illustrates something very profound. It illustrates how a person's faith, how your faith can have a profound impact on those around us, on those around you. 
God can and does work through our faith. Through our faith, He can bring spiritual, emotional, and physical healing to others. Through our faith, He can build up other believers. Through our faith, He can reach those who do not yet love, worship, and serve Him. Through our faith, He can fight against the tide of injustice and immorality in our world and culture. Through our faith, He can care for the downtrodden. Through our faith, He can instruct and encourage our friends, loved ones, and spouses. We're seeing God work through Peter's faith. It's amazing. Now, one of the things that caused people to be attracted to seek out Peter was that God was working through his faith. God was blessing people through his faith. Why did Tabitha's mourners send two men to retrieve Peter? Because they knew that God was blessing others through his faith. Question, are people attracted or drawn to you because of your faith? Are you exposing them through your faith? Are you exposing them to the kind of faith that makes the presence of a loving, gracious, giving, merciful, generous God real, even tangible? Ask yourself that question. I'm a person of faith. Does my faith, is it attractive to others? Are they attracted? Do they come? Are they curious? Do they ask questions? Because my faith is all about love and generosity and mercy and hope and joy. Well, that's how Peter's faith was. That's how Tabitha's faith was. You know, before scattering, the Christians at Jerusalem were known for that kind of faith. And the outsiders, those who weren't a part of the church, favored them and esteemed them. Those Jerusalem Christians abounded in love. Love for God, love for each other, love for others. What did Jesus say? He said, your love for one another will show others that you belong to me. And yet, we attempt to make our faith, our belonging to Jesus known to others in a lot of ways that tend to not be very loving, don't we? We think that pushing our points of Arminianism or Calvinism will show others that we belong to Jesus. Well, I'm in this camp, and that means I'm in Jesus. You're in that camp, not in Jesus. Well, what are you doing? Why do you spend all your time arguing the five points of Calvinism or the five points of Arminianism or the five points of microwavism? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? I'm trying to make my faith known. I'm trying to make the true faith known. I'm trying to make the biblical faith known. That's what I'm doing. Really? Seems to me like you're arguing with people. We think that pushing our view, and I'm really preaching to myself because I'm a reformed guy and, and I've been a moron with some of this stuff over time. We, we think that pushing our view of election will show others that we belong to Jesus. Oh, he chose us before all things and not based on our merit or, or exercising any will because our will has fallen and that's the truth. And if you don't believe that, I don't see how you can be a Christian. What are you doing? I'm showing my faith. Oh. We think that Voting Republican will show others that we belong to Jesus. There's no way a Democrat can belong to Jesus. Are you kidding me? It's impossible. I'm a Republican. <laughs> One person that needs to repent today. 
I vote my convictions, man. You know, I'm not ashamed of that. But we tend to think that, you know, if I put all the Republican stuff, gun freedom, we want to bazooka the moon on Facebook, that shows everyone that I'm following Jesus. Neither Democrats or Republicans at the core care about the kingdom of God. You hear me? They don't. This country is their kingdom to the fallen person who's in the political system. The, the government is the God to the Republican, just as it is to the Democrat. Oh, if I vote Republican and I make sure everyone knows that I support Romney, not even a Christian, they'll know that I belong to Jesus. If I argue my five points of Arminianism, are you kidding me? They'll know. Oh, if I talk about election till the cows come home, they'll know. No, Jesus said it's by how you love they will know. Not through your political affiliation, not through your position on election, and not through your points of Calvinism or Arminianism. It's only by love. Jesus said it's by your love that others will know. I need to preach this to myself every day because I focus on things that tend to not be very loving, to stir up controversy and trouble and angst and arguments and strife between people. We're all guilty of that. We all desire to have attractive faith, don't we? We all desire to have a faith that impacts others for good. Love is the key. You hear me? Love is the key. Love is the key. We need to remember, in theological terms, the purpose of theology is to produce doxology and love for others. That's it. The purpose of theology is not for you to build a tower of Babel of Arminianism or Calvinism so that you can get up there with a gun and defend the tower. I got a 360 degree view. I can take out any Arminian at a thousand yards. The purpose of theology, of Bible study, of knowing God is to produce doxology, which is worship. And it is to produce love for others. For God so loved the world that he sent a Calvinist. No. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself. I'm a Calvinist. I've spent more time arguing these things instead of being loving. Shame on me. <sighs> By faith, attractive faith, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter commanded Tabitha to arise. She then opened her eyes and sat up. Look at 41. <clears throat> and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Resurrection language again. Not resurrection, but it's a term that's used. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. I love it. Peter took her by the hand. This loving gesture. She's got to be going, you're not Jesus, and I was just with him. He's a lot better looking than you. Although there was nothing attractive on this earth, but he's in glory now, so he's immensely, infinitely beautiful. Every knee will bow. Glorious. Can you imagine being sucked out of the presence of Jesus to the presence of Peter? The guy with the mouth, you know, the foot-shaped mouth. The guy that just said some of the dumbest things. You're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. My bad. I'm in the presence of this guy, this yokel. Can you imagine what that must have been like? But she's in his presence, and he gives her 
his hand, and it's like a gesture of like peace, like, it's okay, child. It's okay. She takes his hand. It's really neat. He then presented her to the saints and widows. According to Scripture, it was customary to present a resuscitated, a restored person to his or her family, loved ones, friends. But according to Scripture, we see this in Scripture in 1 Kings 17.23. Elijah raised a boy from uh, Zarephath and presented him to his mother. We read that passage today. That's why I had it read. In 2 Kings 4.36, Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, 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 whatever you want to call him, raised a Shunammite boy and presented him to his mother. In Luke 7.15, Jesus raised a young man from Nain, N-A-I-N, and presented him to his mother. So Peter was doing what others had already done, with the exception that he raised, if you noticed, a female. Interesting. I think that's significant. You know, the Jewish and Greek communities were primarily man-centered. And yet Jesus honored women, loved women, gave women a sense of dignity. He treated them with dignity and respect, and so did the apostles. Now, Luke may have included the story of Tabitha in Acts to illustrate the importance of women in the church and in society. Isn't that interesting? You're talking about a man-centered world during this time. Men, 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 men. Of course, the world was really jacked up, so men, 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 men were jacking it up. Don't all the women are thinking now, but when they started shifting it over to women, everything changed for the good. Not necessarily. We're all sinners. But I think that he put that in here for that purpose. One of the purposes there was to illustrate the importance of women in the church. Women are the backbone of the church. They really are. They're tremendous workers, and he wants his reader, Theophilus, to know these things. Very interesting. Why else did he include so many details about her faith, about her acts of charity and good works? He wants people to see the godly character that she exhibited and how she served the Lord faithfully and served his church. Now, there was a larger purpose behind the restoration of Tabitha. We're getting towards the end. God planned to use the miracle to achieve greater things to make a bigger impact, just as he had done through Aeneas. Look at 42. What does it say? And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. What was the greater purpose? It was to bring many to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why does God bring people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? He does so for his namesake, for his glory. Over the last two weeks, today and last Sunday, we have seen how God brought many, this is so interesting, brought many, many people to salvation in three towns, Luda, Sharon, and Yopa, through two miracles, the healing of Aeneas and the restoration of Tabitha. Isn't that fascinating? Now, you know that the Christians were in those towns doing the work of the gospel. They were serving as Tabitha was. They were serving. They were loving people. They were caring for people. They were proclaiming and gossiping the gospel. And so when Peter came in, people were ripe for the harvest, as I said last week. The miracle affirmed the verbal proclamation of the gospel and it blew people's minds and they surrendered to Jesus. Hence the reason why good works must accompany verbal proclamation. Verbal proclamation without good works is false faith. Good works without verbal proclamation is false faith. The two have to be married together. Awesome. Now let's look at our last verse before we wrap it up. Verse 
43. And this is, gosh, the way these guys put these little nuanced things in here is just amazing. And you look at it and you're like, what does that mean? Nothing, right? No, it means something. Look at that 43. I love it. It says, and he, referring to Peter, okay? Peter performed the miracle. Many people were getting saved. And then it says, and he stayed in Yopa for many days with Simon. And it says, a tanner. Luke tells us that Peter remained in Yopa for many days. You might say that Peter decided to hang around and enjoy the fruit that God was bringing through the gospel and through the miracle. I love that. In so many ways, Peter could be viewed as a traveling evangelist or whatever you want, a miracle worker. Now, they don't usually hang out after the event. They move from town to town to town to town, and that's why I think that there's, there's, it's so iffy. Peter actually did the miracle and stayed, and it says many days. How many days is that? A hundred? Fifty? Twenty? Two hundred? We don't know. It's a lot. Many means a lot. Many translating the Greek means a lot. He stayed, why? To enjoy the fruit, to watch the gospel take form and shape in people's lives, transferring people from darkness to light, becoming selfish people, keeping amassing their things to themselves. He watched these people get transferred from that line of thinking to being generous, to turning into Tabitha's. He watched it take place. He reveled in it and enjoyed the fruit that God was bringing. It's amazing. He decided to stay to enjoy the work that the Lord was continuing to do. Now, Luke tells us that Peter stayed with Simon, a tanner. What is a tanner? It's not like someone who sings in a band. That's a tenor, right? That's what I thought at first. I'm so dumb. I looked at I was like, so this guy was a tenor. No, it says tanner, not tenor. He was a baritone, oh, whatever. He was a tanner. What does a tanner do? A tanner is a craftsman who tans skins and hides. Okay? Now, why did Luke give us Simon's occupation? This is so fascinating. Why did he... He could have just said he stayed with Simon in Yopa, right? Why did he say Simon a tanner? Why did he give us this guy's title, his job description? It's amazing. Why did he do it? Because he wants his readers to know that the church in Yopa was comprised of common, ordinary people, regular blue-collar folks. Why is this important? Because God has chosen to use the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak to shame the strong, and the low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As Calvin put it, the Lord gathered in Yopa as everywhere a church of common sort of men that he might throw down the pride of the flesh. And that's why he put Simon a tanner. God saves ordinary people. And he uses those ordinary people, just like you and I, to bring down the pride of the so-called wise, the high, whatever they are. It's a beautiful, beautiful story we've read and studied. There's so many things to take from it. We've named most of them, so I don't want to take up more, more of your time with more application. I'm sure that God has already challenged you. He's been challenging me all week as I studied. As we enter into this time of communion, may we remember right now, I mean, as much as we, and I say this from my heart, as much as we would like to be like Tabitha, 
to have faith like Tabitha. We must remember that Tabitha can do nothing for us. It's only because of Jesus that Tabitha was who she is, was. It's only because of Jesus that Tabitha was the servant that she was. It's only because of the gospel that she was generous. It's amazing to think. The same God who brought her back to life and resuscitated her has done, if you're in Christ, the same very thing for you, at least in a spiritual sense, that you were dead in your transgressions. And by power of God, through His grace, through the gospel, through the work of His Son, that He has brought you to life. It's an amazing thing. Common folks in this room. May we take this communion and remember what Jesus did for us. May we call upon Jesus, invoke His name, and ask Him, God, make me a generous person. Let me drink from the pool of your grace in greater ways. It's an ocean of grace, actually. Let me drown in it. I want to be a, a generous person who, who gives your grace freely to others and my resources and these things because I'm not bound by those things or to those things. My identity, who I am, all of that is not wrapped up in those things. It's in you, Christ. I can give of myself my time, talent, treasure freely because you gave to me. I can love you, Jesus, because you what? first loved me. That as we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hallelujah.